So today's topic is profit versus people, healthcare, and the drug industry. Our speaker is Tim Doty. Uh, Dr. Tim Doty is a new family physician and an alumnus of UBC and UFC. He has experienced firsthand the influence of the drug industry from several perspectives, first as a student, then as a resident, and now as a practicing physician. His critical analysis of the influence of big pharma on physicians, patients, and society has earned him accolades from his peers and professors alike. Dr. Doty has written several papers on the influence of big pharma on healthcare in Canada. He's also given talks on the same subject. He conducts workshops for rural teaching physicians on recognizing, reckoning with, and restructuring marketing biases in their own practices, and he encourages them to nurture a healthy skepticism in their student doctors. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Tim Doty. I'm I'm here to talk about uh, profit versus people. Um, healthcare and the drug industry, and, and some of the ways the pharmaceutical industry influences um, physicians, patients, and society, and, and what are some of the things that we can do about that. So the first thing I always do, and, and a lot of uh, and physicians should do this at, at, before every talk, is, is just to uh, disclose any conflicts in terms of uh, financial uh, contributions or uh, anything that might affect their opinions. And, and I, I don't have any. I don't get paid by anyone. Um, I don't eat food paid for by the industry. I don't go to talks. And so this way I remove, I try and remove myself from any potential bias. Um, so first slide I always show, just to give you a bit of a background in terms of the pharmaceutical industry. And, and this is uh, from Fortune magazine. This is a Fortune 500 um, survey from 2007 and basically shows the pharmaceutical industry is the third most profitable industry. In, this is from the U.S. And so this, this just shows um, actual profits uh, from, from 2008, so from last year as well. And this is, again, in the U.S. So you can see that this is, this is a huge industry. Um, we're talking about billion, billions of dollars in profit each year. And so when you talk about that, you wonder, you know, where does this money come from? Uh, well, in Canada, it comes mostly through our public health care system. And so this is a slide showing uh, public health care spending and a, the percentage of spending that goes to, to drugs. Um, and so the, the, the brown bar graphs are from 1985, and the, the green ones are from 2006. And if you look just at the far right, that's basically this is all the provinces, and on the far right, it's all of Canada. And it shows basically that the percentage of spending on drugs uh, has has grown mar- markedly just in the la- just in that in those years, and in fact, it, it continues to grow. So, you know, for all of this spending, what sort of value are we getting? What added benefit and value are we, are we getting for that spending? And this is a study that looked at um, a study done at UBC that looked at over a thousand new patented medications between the years 1996 and 2003. And um, so with with generous criteria, they were able to determine that just over 12% of all of these new approved medications were actually seen as breakthroughs. So they they actually offered a substantial improvement in terms of quality of care and treatment of disease, whereas almost 90% um, of all of these new products offered no real substantial therapeutic benefit, okay? And they were, they were named, and we named them Me Too drugs. So I always have a 
a slide that favors the industry because I think there's a lot of there's there is a lot of good things that they have done. You know, people have really good uh, treatments available for diseases, and they have, in a lot of cases, allowed us to live healthier, longer lives. Um, and they've certainly provided us with some some really good treatments in a lot of cases. And and this tends to occur when when physician I put physician goals on the left, but essentially that could mean society's goals or um, you know the goals of public. Um, are, are the same as industry goals. So when the two hands shake, we have good treatments for disease. But we have to remember that for physicians and for uh, public health, um, we want what's best um, for people and, and physicians want what's best for patients. And that's their, that's their, their duty in terms of their, their job and their role. And that the drug industry wants what's best for its shareholders. And that's the goal of any corporation. And I think it's really important, the slide is important, to understand that there's a fundamental difference in terms of the goals and the priorities of both, okay? And so, you know, with that in mind, what is the public perception of what the drug industry does? And these are just some images that show, um, you know, happy people, healthy people, and, the you know, the image of the researcher who works day and night and never sees his family, you know, because they're trying to find the, the, the latest, the next cure, you know. But there are, in fact, a lot of concerns about um, things like the promotion of, promotion of uh, illness. And we use the word medicalization, uh, which is basically taking normal variations in health and turning them into diseases. And I'll just read through some of these acronyms here. Um, social anxiety disorder, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, prehypertension, which essentially means that you have blood pressure. Um, <laughs> it, it's true. Uh, restless leg syndrome, which means that you you just move your le- you move your legs. Um, and this one called um, shift work sleep disorder, which basically means that you're tired during the daytime when most people are awake. Uh, and there's many, many more. And this has been in the last couple of decades. We've really seen uh, just a complete explosion of the names of new disorders and diseases. Okay. And so there's also concern about, concerns about patients being prescribed too many, too many medications, or or other medications which have questionable therapeutic goals. Okay. And occasionally, and we're seeing more and more of this now, the concerns actually cross legal boundaries. And these are just some examples of recent cases, recent lawsuits. Uh, one at the top where Merck was required to pay $4.85 billion uh, to settle lawsuits over Vioxx. And I think we all know, we all recognize the name Vioxx. Um, Eli Lilly was required to pay $2.67 billion um, for s- civil litigation charges. And a lot of these are, are to do with um, tax fraud, uh, marketing, um, marketing lawsuits, things like that. But the list goes on and on. And this is just another example of some more uh, less recent fraud cases and, and settlements. And it's important to know that in all of these cases, there's never any admission of guilt. It's always uh, the money is paid to get rid of the case and get, get it closed, and uh, there's never any admission of guilt. And so when you look through all of these, you start to wonder, you know, is this, is this simply the cost of doing business? And, in fact, you can see examples where companies actually set aside money for this sort of thing. So it is, in fact, doing business in a lot of cases. And so with that in mind, we're going to talk 
um, about some of the ways that the drug industry influences physicians, and, and then we're going to talk a bit more about patients and about society as well. But with respect to physicians, um, we'll talk a bit about gifts, gifts to physicians. We'll talk a bit about continuing medical education, um, which is a requirement for all physicians to maintain their professional, professional standards, um, and as well research, which forms the basis of all of our um, evidence in, in practice. And so we'll talk a bit about gifts first. You know, why are they given? And, and oftentimes gifts are given to foster goodwill. They're, they're given to, to induce a familiarity with a product or even with a certain sales representative that might come into the clinic. Um, and often these gifts form a social contract which, um, in which the obligation to directly reciprocate um, whether or not the recipient the recipient is even conscious of it, uh, it tends to influence behavior, and so uh, that's quite common. And when you look at when you start asking questions, why are they accepted? You know, most I think most doctors don't feel that it really causes a problem, um, and most certainly don't think that it influences their practice. And there was an interesting study on this where doctors were asked if receiving gifts actually influenced their practice, and the majority of them said no, it does not. But if you ask the same question and said, do you think it would influence other physicians, the majority of them said, yes, it would. So this, this showed that, that influence or bias is actually subconscious. It's not something that we're really aware of. Um, but it is, in fact, a real, a real thing that occurs. And it's unfortunate, but some probably feel as though they're entitled to it. Um, but more importantly, I think, in, especially with medical students and residents, is that we're often socialized into an environment where gift-giving is acceptable. And as a medical student, you're not usually able to, uh, you're not often willing to, um, to disagree with anything that your role model is doing in that sense. So we're socialized into this, and then it forms your practice for the next 20 or 30 years. And there's also huge time pressures. <clears throat> So studies show that gifts influence doctors, okay? And, and this is a study that was done um, at McGill. It's a great study. And it showed that there were three key areas where influence occurred. And the first was knowledge. So physicians were, were not able to identify wrong claims about medications, okay? The second was attitude. And they had, they had a much more positive attitude towards pharmaceutical representatives towards uh, the products that they came in and, and were marketing. Um, and it also changed their behavior. So you would see in these physicians uh, more inappropriate prescriptions, um, and, and they would often prescribe newer, newer medications much more quickly than physicians who were not, not being influenced. And, and so the, the next question is, and especially for physicians, um, is how do, how do patients, how, how, do, how, does, how does the public feel about this? And, you know, do, do patients want to see their doctors or want to see doctors who are, quote, under the influence? Um, and they've tried to do studies on this, and researchers have, when they've tried to do this, have often found it difficult to find physicians who are willing to participate in these studies. And so it, it begs the question, you know, are, are physicians aware of this conflict? And if they are, are they actually willing to recognize it? Um, and, and also, you know, why would physicians not want their patients to know about this? So what about the, what about the research? You know, this forms the basis for all of our, our, our evidence and our treatment. And years ago, research was, 
was mostly publicly funded. So it was academic institutions, uh, national organizations, and now a great majority of research is, is funded by industry. So it's actually funded by the company who is making the product, who's making the drug. So, so this means that the agenda, the research agenda, is set by the industry. It's not set by public health need. It's set by the goals of the company. And definitely we're seeing this, that the research is, in fact, biased towards industry. And, you know, that's a logical conclusion. And we can, we can pull it apart. And these are just a few points. But basically, uh, the studies themselves are designed to achieve positive results. And there's many, many different ways they do this. Um, you often see that when a study is negative, so it doesn't produce the results that they want, that A, it's not published, and I, you know, I, you, it's not a surprise that journals don't want to publish negative studies, but in fact, you do see companies that will hide evidence so they will not, it will not be available for anyone to see, and there's been some lawsuits over that as well. <clears throat> often articles are, in fact, ghostwritten, so they're not actually written by the researcher, the person doing the research. They're written by the company, and then they have a physician who's widely known to be an expert in that area sign on as the author. So in terms of academic research, this is inexcusable. And so when you get all of this research together, you achieve what we call clinical practice guidelines, which is basically forms the, the rules essentially for doctors in terms of how they practice. And a study from the Journal of Med, uh, the American Medical Association found that it, the authors of the clinical practice guidelines, of them, 81% had some interaction with the drug industry. Almost 60% had relationships with companies whose products were actually being considered in the guidelines. And almost 100% of them had at least some um, interaction with drug industry at some point. And so this, this shows that there's a deep integration between, um, with academia and, and industry. And so the other, the other thing then is continuing medical education. And so doctors need to go to conferences. They need to go to talks. They need to keep um, their professional um, status up in terms of the quality of care. And so in, in today's world, a lot of these events are sponsored and in, in a lot of cases organized by the drug industry. And so it's important to understand that for physicians, going to a conference um, means that you're trying to learn, you're trying to do things which are best for patients, and, but yet for industry, for the sponsor of the conference or the funding of the conference, um, keeping in mind that for industry, this is really just a marketing tool. This is, uh, and in fact, when you look at the, the money that, that is going to these sorts of conferences, they'll come from the marketing budget. So it's not it's not the same thing, and these are just an this is an example of two conferences. The one on the left is actually a local conference, but these happen all over the place, um, and you can clearly see the name of a company at the top. This is this is the company which is inviting you to come to this talk um, and learn about different you know different diseases and and ways to treat them. And on the right, the, uh, this is um, for the Therapeutics Initiative in Vancouver. It's an organization that is not industry-funded, and they do a conference which has no money from industry. Um, and they do it every year. It's a great conference. And if you look at the agendas of both conferences, they're quite different. And so, you know, I wonder, anyways, would patients rather me go to this one or to this one? 
This is an old ad, but basically illustrating the fact that doctors are often used as role models, and I've used the word brand champions. I mean, this is an old camel cigarettes ad. So in effect, this doctor is acting as a brand champion. He's championing, championing the brand. Um, but we also use the term KOL or key opinion leaders, and, and physicians are often um, catered into this environment where they can become a key opinion leader. <clears throat> so we've talked a bit about physicians and the influence on physicians. I want to talk a bit more. I want to talk about patients now, and so you'll, you'll recognize some of this stuff. Basically, um, this has to do a lot with direct-to-consumer advertising. And so the rules in the U.S. and Canada are, are fairly different, but you definitely see uh, types of ads up here for different treatments and things. And so when you look at advertising, you wonder, you know, what are the goals and are they conflicting? Are they common goals? Um, and as well, is advertising actually balanced? Uh, is it fair? And why does the industry spend so much money on it? And, and then the final question would be, what is it really for? So... Some of the common goals for advertising that are claimed by the industry would be to educate the public about illness and disease and medical conditions, to destigmatize illness, as well to empower consumers. Um, but there's obvious conflicting goals, and, and, and that would be for a company to try and gain competitive advantage over existing products and to maximize profits. And... This is just a sort of a, a caption, but basically leading you to think that, you know, is, is, is advertising actually balanced, uh, right? And there's a lot of evidence that shows that it's not, uh, that, that, you know, benefits will be spoken about much more uh, often than harms. And, and so the fact is that industry knows very well that direct-to-consumer advertising leads to more patient visits, it leads to more direct requests for advertised drugs, and it also leads to more prescriptions for advertised drugs, period. End of story. And, and so we see that there's been a huge increase in the amount of money the industry has spent on advertising. And on the left, it shows uh, just a bar graph from 1998, I believe, to 2004, where the number, and that's in billions of dollars on the left, so we're in 2004, up over $4 billion just in advertising. Okay, so that's a lot of money. And then there's just some more specific figures on the right in terms of companies and how much they're spending on, on advertising. And it's up over $740 million there for the top one. But So what about educating the public? Okay, and this is, a, this is a picture of a series of pictures from an ad for a condition called hyperhidrosis. And that basically means that you, you sweat excessively. That's what it means. And, and so you can see at the top there's a picture of a, a gentleman standing in the ocean in a business suit up to his knees. And he's probably, his feet are really wet, probably standing in the ocean. Um, but you'll also see there's a picture just lower down of a gentleman in a suit who has a puddle of water below his feet. And it says, hyperhidrosis may cause problems at work, at recreational activities, and interpersonal relations. Or, Interpersonal relationships. So I don't know about you, but when I, when I do recreational activities like running or cycling, I often sweat excessively too. Um, so one, one then wonders, does a picture of a gentleman in the ocean and, and followed by a list of symptoms and then followed by a prescription really educate you about a condition and all the possible treatments and, 
and options that you have. So I think not. <clears throat> and so what about empowering consumers? And so we hear this, these quotes from, from industry about liberating the consumer, uh, letting them make informed choices about drugs and things like that. And so we already know that ads are not balanced. We know that they're not objective. And, and they're not educational. So there can't be an informed decision about uh, a drug, about a treatment from a drug ad. And basically the realities then are that direct-to-consumer advertising is about publicizing a disease. It's about creating a demand for a drug. It's about getting the patient to see their doctor and then getting the patient to ask for a specific drug. And, and so when I see the word empowering, to me that has a positive connotation that usually means something positive. However, one wonders about empowering through fear. This is an old, this is an older ad, um, basically advertising that if you didn't want to show up for your final exam, i.e. toe tag, that you would get a cholesterol test. So this was, this was motivating people, empowering people through fear. And this is a picture of, of an, from an ad which um, was for a, a drug called Orlistat or Xenical. It's a weight loss drug. And the, the caption on the ad um, had a picture of a baby, and the caption said, in the beginning, your weight was in the capable hands of your doctor. It should still be. That was the caption. So this, to me, implies that your weight is not your responsibility, uh, and it also implies a quick fix over long-term solutions. And then you also wonder about the harm of treatment versus benefit. So finally, then, when you decide you're going to go see the doctor because you think you eat too much fast food or you want to stop smoking or make other, some other change in your health care status, um, you'll have to back up a bit there. We're going ahead now. Okay, this is it, yeah. So you go to the waiting room and you sit down and there's a TV on the wall and they're showing programs and things. This is an ad for a company advertising to the drug industry. And the caption on the ad says, Accent Health delivers on all counts. In the trusted environment of their doctor's office, our viewers are watching health-related programming and absorbing your health-related advertising. And because they're minutes away from meeting with their doctor, they'll be going into their visit with your brand top of mind. So doctor discussion translates to return on investment, which is profit, for your brand. And with 50% of our viewers finding your message more believable when they see it on Accent Health than when they see it at home, we'll know we'll deliver results. So this is interesting. So we've talked a bit about advertising and influence on patients and physicians, and I want to talk a bit more about society now. So in society, we see uh, things like promotion of illness. Uh, we see medicalization where if you think you're normal, you think again. Uh, we'll talk a bit about lobbyists, okay, and as well some interest groups. So this is a, a pamphlet for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. And on the pamphlet, it says, like parent, like child, with question mark. And the caption says, if your child has been diagnosed with ADHD, you may have it too. Okay, and so, you know, the take-home message from that, certainly from the industry point of view, is this is a huge expansion of their market, right? And so if you turn the page, you see a list of symptoms, and, you know, I'll just run through the symptoms. Basically, difficulty in relationships. So, I don't know, 
Let me put up your hands. <laughs> but second, difficulty starting complex tasks and completing tasks. And I don't know about you, but I don't have a, I have trouble with my taxes. Um, increased incidence of automobile accidents, traffic uh, traffic violations, and I've called this cell phone disorder. But <laughs> basically, uh, a lack of organization and underachievement in in career and academics and. And so, the, you know, the list kind of goes on. But basically, at the bottom, it says, while ADHD cannot be cured, um, medication and behavior modification can help manage the symptoms. So thank goodness. Uh, it's too bad I have this for life, but uh, medication will help me. And this equals a virtual goldmine for the drug industry. This is a, a, another ad for the same condition, but I've got some captions. The doctor is saying, you know, John, just by looking at you, I can see that you have adult ADHD because clearly he looks like he has it. Um, and stay there. I'll write you a prescription for Concerta. And this is the ad for Concerta. Um, but in reality, he might benefit from actually just sitting down and talking about life and what's going on. So with all of this, you know, I thought the drug industry really cared about us. And going back to some pictures there. But I don't know about us, but they do care about these guys. This is a picture, a bygone picture now, um, of all of the donations and the um, basically the, the donations to all the, the p different delegates here who signed a Medicare Act in the U.S. This was fairly recently. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars in each of those captions to all the people who are conveniently standing around the table signing this agreement. And so another slide about lobbying, um, you know, from 1998 on the left to 2007, the amount of spending on lobbyists on our government has gone, has skyrocketed. It's $190 million up there at the top. So, you know, where can people go for help when you, when you see this? Well, you search the Internet and you might find a group called the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest. And hmm, that sounds pretty good, actually. I wonder what they have to say. So the organization advocates for um, the public interest, and their caption says, you know, um, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization and um, promoting affordable, preventive, and patient-centered care. Uh, but when you look closer at it, you can actually see that the donation levels to this organization, you know, there's two, there's two before the 10,000 level mark. Uh, at the corporate level, and then there's $25,000 at the chairman's circle level, and then $50,000 at the president's club level, which gives you annual personal briefings from this organization. So when you look further into it, you see that the president of the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest is actually the senior vice president for health affairs at Manning, Selvage and Lee. And Manning, Selvage and Lee is a huge public relations firm which has as its, as its main clients the pharmaceutical industry. So this is actually called a front group. And a front group is an organization that claims to represent one agenda, while in reality it serves another interest whose sponsorship is rarely known and not talked about. Okay, And food companies, corporate polluters, anyone who has a message, and we all remember the tobacco industry, they often used front groups to uh, deliver messages that they know the public will reject if they knew where the funding came from. So... These, however, are some legitimate organizations. You have the Center for Science in the Public Interest, which interestingly has a similar name, but is very different. The Center for Media and Democracy, another very good organization, and SourceWatch as well. <clears throat> so what's the point of all of this? And we're, we're just about done, but it's for the public to recognize that most doctors have interactions with industry. 
Most interactions are likely to introduce bias into their practice, whether they realize it or not. Um, and the drug industry takes an active role in influencing research studies, practice guidelines, education, which forms our, our learning, uh, and physician preferences for drugs. Okay? It's important for the public to realize and recognize that direct-to-consumer advertising is what it is. It's advertising and marketing. It isn't education, and it doesn't form the basis of a fully informed, objective, and critical assessment of illness and disease, as well as a full complement of all the available treatment options. Uh, nor does it, in a great majority of cases, address true public health need. So what can you do? What can I do? Uh, if you get a new prescription, you can ask if there is a non-pharmaceutical solution. Okay, Some doctors have been conditioned to just pick a drug and choose a drug. Um, when you do get a new prescription, you can ask, how will I know when to stop the medication? Often medications are used for longer than they need to be. Um, there are exceptions, of course, but when you do get a new prescription, you can ask about the possible side effects uh, and which ones should I be most concerned about. Uh, and occasionally, you see side effects which are actually worse than, than the disease, the disorder or the risk factor. Or, so this is common. You can also ask your doctor if they see drug reps and if they attend lunches, drug lunches, and go to talks. And you can ask them why. It's, it's up to you. You can also tell them how you feel about it, too. Okay? If you're given a sample, those little packages and little cartons and stuff, you can ask if there are other drugs that do the same thing. You can ask if there's generics, okay, less expensive medications that do the same thing. And you can also ask about the evidence for the treatment. So, And finally, what else can I do? We can exercise. We can move our body. We can walk, swim. We can eat good, wholesome food. We can help protect the environment, support clean air, clean water, avoid the use of chemicals, and we can support local organic farming. These are, have the potential to do way more for our health than other things that I've talked about. And you can be thankful that if you do get another prescription that it's not for this. This is, for, this is profit pills, and they put profit before people. So I think that's it. Anyways, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> oh. Oh. Oh, thanks.